0: From from where we're at now, we would like to believe that we think a little bit more critically about those things and, you know, kind of take it apart. But (laughs) right. Howdy, folks! This is Hedgepod, a podcast about how our mass media reinforces the cultural hegemony of the ruling class. I'm Jack. My pronouns are they and them. Also okay with he and him.
1: I'm Nova. My pronouns are he and him.
2: I'm Athena. My pronouns are she, they.
0: What we do here is explain and explore the many ways that popular media is used to consciously and unconsciously enforce the ideology of the ruling class. Cultural hegemony is a component of Marxist philosophy. We're leftists here, which means we have radical takes, like, not everything can be solved with a rousing speech. Life is more complicated than a everybody-clapped moment on an airplane. The reason that we bring that take to the table is because I have a... Great honor to introduce a very special guest, co-founder of the Gravel Institute, Henry Williams. Henry, thanks for coming on the show with us.
3: Hello, I'm excited to be here.
0: We're excited to have you. So you you got an opportunity to to uh watch this show, right? We have uh
3: regrettably, yes. It's, I think it must also be my third time watching it. <laughs> I remember watching it as a kid, not getting it watching it being very annoyed a second time and then just re-watching it again to discuss it.
0: So the, the show that we got to look at today is uh, an episode of The Newsroom, Aaron Sorkin Classic. Um, <laughs> season 1, Episode 7. The episode is called 5-1. Does somebody want to give me a breakdown as to why it's called that?
2: Well, don't you know? It's such an important date, Jack. How do you not know what 5-1 was? <laughs> Everybody
0: I, know, like, the, the, I thought just the incredible
3: audacity for them to call this episode 5-1 like it's 9-11, like it's January mm-hmm. 6th, and it's a date. Of course you're going to know what it is. <laughs> right. How do you not know what it is? Right. And even, I would say, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the more insulting aspect of that is just the fact that the episode is itself part of the hagiography trying to make it into a date that we all remember and know. Although I think the fact that probably no one has any idea what we're talking about means that it did not succeed.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, I couldn't have said it better myself. So it's, it's, uh, it's basically represented as the day that, that we got Osama bin Laden. And
1: uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we got him.
0: We got him. <laughs> hey, that's pretty damn good impression.
1: I <laughs> I had eight years of the fucker. <laughs> well,
0: so uh, before we get into the show, as always, going to be discussing major spoilers for the series up to this point.
1: <laughs> spoilers. Osama bin Laden died. So if He's you're, dead, folks,
0: if you're a fan of the show.
1: or Or of Osama Bin Laden I'm sorry you have to I I this way
3: I think this show is almost impossible to spoil because it's just about the news Mm. and if you watch the news in the years that it's depicting you know what happens in the show Uh, it's pretty rote I wanted to mention one other thing about the date before talking about the show itself which is, of course it's also May Day the Mm. world (laughs) yeah
0: yeah regrettably about half of that cut oh, well, out
3: I was just saying they put labor day on a different day
0: but yeah may day they they totally they totally glossed over may day uh, by changing that one and and of course this was a perfect opportunity to just completely steal even more thunder from the labor movement um so it's a as it's as is tradition as is tradition anything that we can do so Athena how does this how does this show start up I I've, I have my notes in front of me but it, does, it, it it starts off with something weird it's talking about weed so I don't know I forget what's going on here
2: Oh uh, I see I thought you were talking about the weird PBS special that intro that we uh, that it starts up with but oh also Aaron Serkin is listed in the credits twice at the beginning I don't know if anyone else caught that
0: <laughs> It sounds like something but. that he would do.
2: Um, So, there's a party happening at uh, Will Mc... Oh, I cannot... Will McAvoy.
0: Will McAvoy is the main character, right?
2: That guy, Will. I'm just going to call him Will. Um, So, there's a party happening at his place to celebrate something. And the the weed thing comes into play because in the party, he takes two Vicodin and And he takes two cookies that are, like, pure weed cookies, so...
1: marijuana edibles.
2: Yeah, and it's kind of weird that he is functional throughout the rest of the episode, because, uh, I don't know how you would be functional if you've never done that before.
1: Yeah, well, and that's kind of the thing, too, is that you know that, like, neither Aaron Sorkin nor Jeff Daniels or Jeff Newsroom Jeff have ever actually done that amount of edibles because you would not be functioning at remotely, you would not be at, like, a comedic level of, like, impaired functioning. You'd just be in space.
0: Well, it's interesting, too, that, like, I think this may be a little bit of the unconscious hegemony, but the fact that they do all of this comedy shit around him being really, really high on, you know, edibles, when you mentioned earlier that he took Vicodin as well, Like, no problem with Vicodin. You know, he's used to the Vicodin or something, or that's totally Mm. fine and normal. But the weed, the weed's what made him real loopy. You know, like, golly. I
3: I wanted to establish, too, for anyone who hasn't seen this show, that Will McAvoy, Jeff Daniels' character, the main character, is Aaron Sorkin. Mm. Uh, This is kind of a a thing. Well, you know, this is sort of a debated fact, but uh, basically all of the plot lines of the show about him being kind of a sexist asshole about him being uh, domineering and hard to work with and a Torture genius that everyone needs to listen to because he's right about everything Uh, All of those are about Aaron Sorkin Mm. and you can tell I think watching this is this is not the worst episode for it But you can tell watching some of the episodes that he is really litigating his own workplace bouts uh, through his his writing right Uh, and when you watch the show through that lens, the whole edibles Vicodin thing gets a little gets a little weirder, because See, it makes you wonder. I mean, uh, how much of this really is ripped from his own uh, uh, idiosyncrasies and uh, uh, you know we- weird personal experiences?
2: Yeah, I thought that was uh, the Don Kiefer fellow. At least in, in this episode, it, he felt like the stand-in for Sorkin because there's always someone who's a stand-in.
0: Mm. Right, I think himself. I think sort of
3: with Sorkin's writing, everyone is kind of a sock puppet for him. Mm. Right. He identifies with different people to different degrees in different episodes. Basically, who's ever right, whoever is right in any argument mm. or any scene, that's that's him speaking.
2: Unless they're a woman.
0: Yeah. So, for those of you unfamiliar with the newsroom, uh, the cast is essentially Will McAvoy. He's like the 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 main newscaster guy. He's like the uh, uh, Brian Williams of this uh, fictitious news. Uh, place uh, it's called ACN. It's like Atlantis Cable News. It's essentially, supposed to be it's CNN. CNN. It's CNN. It's just CNN. <laughs> uh, and then uh, there's there's Don Kiefer, who's like one of the main producer writer guys. He's like, uh, and in this episode, he's stuck on the airplane. So he's uh, I, I, did they they land and they can't let him off of the plane? Oh or- well,
2: but before that, we have to establish that there was a phone call. At the very beginning of the episode i did forget to
4: mention that mm, okay from a uh, deep throat deep throat <laughs> <laughs> how did you get this number that's not important it's important to me charlie this is the first of several calls and its only purpose is to demonstrate my credibility as a source how about you tell me your name call me deep throat i'm not calling you deep throat that's a sacred pseudonym and by the way deep throat gave woodward his name on the first call he said hi this is Mark felt I'm the deputy director of the FBI and I want to talk to you about the story you're writing so who is this I don't care what you call me call me late for dinner
0: <laughs> right so they the, yeah that's right so the one of the I, I forget what Charlie Skinner's character is in the show but he's a big wig of some sort he's he's Will's boss right and like old-time mentor or something he's played by the the law and order guy uh, Sam Watterson. Anyway, he's he takes the 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 show opens with him taking a call from a guy claiming to be uh, having some inside information about a big news story, and it's really vague and cryptic. And dude calls himself Deep Throat, and is trying to like do this whole Watergate reveal thing, like he's the uh, whistleblower or something. Yeah, uh, he
2: says that you're going to get inform You're going to have to go to work at this time period
1: in roughly 90 minutes you're going to get an email from the white house telling you to get to work i am that's it
4: should i be telling people to get to work now
1: then do what you tell me if i could i would have already i'm not trying to play a game i have 7:30 at 9 eastern you're going to get an email from white house press secretary jay corney telling you to get to work and when that happens you'll know that i was
2: for real And I'm just calling to tell you that. So you'll know in the future that I'm credible or something,
1: right? Yeah, it's an awful lot. It's way more significance than modern cable news coverage ever actually involves or deserves.
3: Right, right. And that's, I think, the key conceit of this whole show is that the news is our church. Uh, what they say on the news is, or rather, no, the news used to be our church. You know, it used to be the place that we all came together as Americans. It used to tell us the capital T truth, and it's mm. been diminished, and it's been broken down by all the business people who are trying to squeeze all the value out of it. But Will McAvoy, Jeff Daniels' character, is single-handedly rescuing the news from its <laughs> <sobravity. Right. laughs> And just like Walter Cronkite back in the day telling us just the unvarnished truth. Mm-hmm. And that truth telling—that's what the whole thing is about. Of course, the strangeness is that, especially in this episode, and it, you know, it's a broader theme in the show because in the later part of the series, they report a totally fake story. But um, in this one, Oopsie. they just report the same <laughs> thing at the same time as everyone else. I think right. the only thing is that they
1: report it slightly earlier. They, they know are to get very ready. Careful to only report it once it's been confirmed. Right. right. Else would be irresponsible.
4: Right.
5: We've got Chris Hawken at CENTCOM and Helene Cooper at the New York Times.
4: We got him. Let's go. No. What do you mean? We're not going yet. We got double confirmation. First of all, we don't. We have Hawken at CENTCOM and a reporter saying she has two sources. I don't know who the sources are. It's Helene Cooper. It's solid. We're not going. Charlie, there's nothing wrong with waiting for the White House to tell us it's reportable. This isn't Watergate. They're not the enemy. We don't know what's going on. We sent military assets into sovereign airspace, maybe they're not out yet. Maybe someone's injured on the ground. Maybe someone's been taken prisoner and the rescue operation is underway. Maybe we're at war with Pakistan. Guys, in 91, I was cheering on my guy in Tel Aviv who was reporting where the Scud missiles were landing. Turns out the Iraqis didn't know where the missiles were landing, and I was helping them range their targets. Three killed, 96 injured in that operation. Geraldo's probably still up the street, saying we're in a dogfight with Finland. Whatever happened tonight, I promise you, lives and a presidency were put on the line. We're going to get this one right. And if we're two minutes late, let that be a small penance for all the ones we got wrong.
0: Yeah, that was the, 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 the finger wagging of that whole thing. Like we can't, you know, it's like, it, it's it's so inconsistent too because in some episodes they're like, uh, you know, we have to be the first because that's the business thing. We got to break the story. And then in other episodes they're like, uh, well, you know, we have to verify everything and make sure that it's 100% certain. It's like, it, it's like finger wagging both ways, each See? way they look at it.
2: I think it's because he is put, like, I got this feeling when I watched it this third time and (laughs) that it's kind of like the feel of The Office and everything is kind of like a movie's depiction of, like, 1920s newspaper journalism is what I was getting. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I could get that. I'm wondering if it's that sort of mysticism that he's trying to portray. Mm
0: Mm-hmm just like a back in the good old days things were yeah. you know well you see it in the intro of the show too like oh, they, yeah they, they have this really soapy sort of you know up I, anybody who's seen any of Sorkins work it's like all this you know saccharine uplifty music sounding mm-hmm. stuff like it's the like the you know the climax of Lord of the Rings is playing music <laughs> in the background CBS special yeah it's just it's just like so drenched of you know trying to inject emotion into the most mundane shit <laughs> like- and like and
2: i
3: feel like to me it, it's also like the most hegemony it's the, the the most hegemonic aspect maybe of the newsroom in general is that it's so obsessed with this pre-watergate era of trust and the news being sacrosanct but mm. of course not only watergate and you know it's funny with deep throat i think it's kind of a tell that he uses this name in the in the script but uh The idea that before the 70s, the news was trustworthy and upright, which could not be further from the truth. The Mm -hmm. news was such open and complete propaganda that just basic facts about the war in Vietnam Mm -hmm. simply could not be reported to the public. Uh, It simply couldn't be said in public. And the cabal of three or four uh, oligarchic families that controlled the only news channels that existed at the time uh, had a stranglehold on what was seen, not to praise our current news environment but back then there was really only one way to get a message out which was in the prestige newspapers or the prestige tv all of it was controlled by an extremely small handful of people who all knew each other and were part of this sort of dynastic world of media and they wouldn't tell you it if they didn't want you to hear it and that's the that's the era that this entire show is based around nostalgia for right uh, which is the strangeness and kind of the perversity of it You know, is the obsession with an era that not only didn't exist, but and of course, you see that in the the very first scene of the show where he starts screaming about how America isn't the best anymore. Mm -hmm. But we used to be.
0: We used to be. Make America great again, right? This (laughs) used
6: to be a proper country. We used to make things. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed, we cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men, we aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't... We didn't scare so easy. <clears throat> we were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered.
0: It's just like the biggest blue hat MAGA thing to, to do. We like, used
3: to report the news.
0: Yeah, right. And, um,
3: of course, I'm just i going to skip straight to it because there's there's one scene in this episode which I think probably everyone has seen. And it's the only scene that matters, (laughs) which is where, you know, they're on the plane and they know that Osama bin Laden's been killed, but nobody else does. But the other passengers start getting texts that the president is going to make a speech to the nation. And so everyone's freaking out. And he stands up and says, I'm going to make an announcement. I know what it is. And and a flight attendant tells him to sit down. And he, of course, calls her a crazy lady, hysterical. Oh, I have
2: something to say about that. Classic
3: Sorkin. Right. And then, well, and then the flight and then the, the pilot comes out and he calls him Sir. And I think he might even salute him.
5: He said, <laughs> yeah, already killed
3: Osama bin Laden for you.
5: Folks, there hasn't been a terrorist attack. None of your friends and family are in danger. The president will be speaking in just a few no. minutes. Listen, they're just nervous. I don't because care.
4: You do not take over control of the cabin.
5: They're getting emails and going online and seeing. You do the...
6: not take over control of the cabin ever. Ma'am, just sit down. No. And... You know. I'm getting the captain.
5: Yeah, get the captain because I'd like to have a word with him. The seatbelt while we're standing still is one captain, thing, but how paranoid do you have to be to think that I'm declaring myself in charge of the? Is there a problem, sir? Yeah, I was just asking how paranoid you have to. You have to be, sir. Sir. Captain, my name is Don Kiefer. That's Elliot Hirsch, and that's Sloan Sabbath. We work for Atlantis Cable News, and we wanted you and your first officer and flight attendant crazy lady to be the first ones on this plane to know that our armed forces killed Osama bin Laden for you tonight. You're serious? Yes, sir.
3: hands and he says we reported the news Uh Mm -hmm. and that's the that's the pivotal scene and the moral of the episode now i mean just everything about it can be pulled apart from every angle not just the you know the gender stuff and then also the the, just the fact that he says we killed him for you for Mm. just like pilots generically i I remember thinking (laughs) that like most pilots in america are are like foreign trained like a lot of them are like bulgarian I
0: mean, mm. it, it, it like zooms a in a on the epaulets on his shoulder and everything too. You know, like the yeah. camera work. It's just like zooms right in on it. Like, oh, I for this is a service person. Am I supposed like,
2: to know what that meant? It, what it, those little things meant? That's the thing. It
0: it's, was just his rank. It's just yeah. his
1: rank epaulets. Does not
0: actually mean? It. But it's, it's like okay. it's like a the the Boeing rank epaulets. Like it's like yep. <laughs> it's not even like a. Uh, you know, I like, know, I thought World there War. was
2: something there that was supposed to represent that he was there well, or something.
0: Like, it's supposed to be, the the idea of it is supposed to be like, okay, well, Osama bin Laden, you're supposed to connect the dots here. Osama bin Laden, nine eleven. Nine eleven was a thing where you had heroic people, uh, pilots, sacrifice for America. Like, you're supposed to make all this connection, and anybody that's that had been, you know, drenched in the news and would probably be a big fan of Aaron Sorkin's, would easily make that connection, I think. But from from where we're at now, we, I would like to believe that we think a little bit more critically about those things and, you know, kind of no, take it wrong. apart. But. You'd be
3: so wrong. <laughs> right. It's also one of Sorkin's kind of obsessions. You see it in some of his other stuff, which is the idea of this liberal jingoism, like mm-hmm. we're more patriotic than the conservatives. You know, right. we're more insane about the mm-hmm. troops. We're more bloodthirsty even than they are. And that Sorkin constantly feels the need to prove that. Yeah. It's
1: that Nat Lib Hillary Clinton Barack Obama bullshit. He was
3: just laying the groundwork for RussiaGate. I mean, uh, now I swear to God, if they had made this show a couple years later about the Trumpiness, now that would have been that could have been a masterpiece. I think the the liberal psychosis that would be revealed by him doing the newsroom about 2017, I think, mm. would be
0: incredible. I <laughs> that think would, it would be
2: hurt my brain.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. <laughs> The, this the uh, Watching this particular episode was just like, I mean, the, I watched it when I was, you know, when it was fairly fresh, and, you know, I, I remember thinking at the time that, like, eh, you know, like, I remember, you know, I was a young baby liberal still, and, you know, I remember kind of liking it, but I still remember not being, like, you know, hand over my heart and, like, just wanting to, you know, I just didn't get that, that through it, mostly because the acting was so weird, like... Jeff Daniels' weird weed acting is so, like, he can't catch a remote control that they throw at him, and it just, like, flies right by him. I'm Here, like.
2: Here's the thing, though, because, like, I, I listen to a lot of the West Wing thing, so I, you know, I'm, I don't listen to that, or I don't actually watch the West Wing because I like myself too much. But, <laughs> you know, I, I've listened to some of the clips through that, and it's the same stuff. Yeah. Like I guess I don't know if it's the same visually but as far as like pacing and everything it's the same pacing.
0: Right. And uh it, it's it's really weird like there's even some like male gazy stuff in this too that's like oh, I mean yeah.
1: Oh yeah, there's a lot. Like
0: <laughs> uh, Olivia Munn's entire character like is constantly like saying weird gross shit about her Body and clothes and stuff. Like I, she said some kind of like made some remark about the top button while they were sitting in the plane, and it was just like, I don't remember exactly what she said, but I just remember being like, man, I don't know. And if you're if if what you're saying is true about like, the you know Aaron Sorkin exploring himself through this writing, which I would not. Be surprised whatsoever. That make that like takes it to another level. This is like even grosser to me.
3: You know, it just—I mean, this is if you've read anything about Aaron Sorkin too. I mean, he's sort of known for—he's a, he's a hideous sexist and impossible to work with. And uh, I think that there was a lot of controversy in The Social <laughs> Network because, of course, I think it's a movie that doesn't pass the Bechdel test, first of all. But second of all, he's notorious for all of these weird shots and weird aspects. And I think the other thing is for sorkin in his writing women are only really ever a sort of plot device Mm -hmm. they only ever really create conflict or problems or get something incorrect or and that happens in social network you have these characters who really only exist to create conflict i guess the one exception is cj in the west wing but the thing about her is and maybe one or two other characters in The west wing but the thing about them is that they're portrayed as one of the boys that's the entire framing of their characters Mm -hmm. Mm
2: Well, that, but also what he'll do is he'll put a point in a woman's mouth that's supposed to be the wrong take, but yep. it actually kind of turns weird because the take is actually, like, maybe the right one. Oh, right. So you're supposed to be thinking that this woman's stupid, but she's actually saying something that's, like... You know, like, maybe bombing people's bad. Yeah. And you're supposed to be like, oh, you're the, I mean, sure, That's but it's so much women. more complicated well, than it's, that. It's
0: you know, like the flight like, attendant, right? Like, the flight attendant, it's like she, it, she it's and it's really so right. like she comes out and seems really... I'm so
2: glad you brought
0: her up. Like, she comes out, and at first it's kind of like... It, it seems very overtly, like, trying to be smug and, like, confrontational, kind of. And and then, like, he, like, totally owns her with his logic and reason, you know? It's it's exactly!
2: It's like... <laughs> Then, okay so before like right before i i went on discord i said like, oh my god i've discovered something in this last uh watch and that is the whole entire steward stewardess thing mm. i i guarantee you aaron sorkin had a confrontation mm. with the flight attendant <laughs> and have. he later was sitting there somewhere I was like oh my god if i would have said this i would have owned her you know so then this happened and half of this i think is him just like you know Coming up with these arguments that he can, you know, it's all a coping device. I think mm. because I don't know how else you could do this and not like, because it, it's being an ass. Yeah. Like I just keep thinking this poor woman just trying to do her job.
0: Exactly. I right, mean, it was right. the uh, uh, the Shira episode all over again, right? Like with the with, with the people that are working and everybody's just giving them a hard time constantly. It's like, come on, man. They're just trying to
6: they're,
0: they're just trying to make it through their day, you know. Like, she doesn't want to
2: be sitting there either
1: no and you know there there is uh perhaps a little bit of historical precedent related to the topics of this episode about why a stewardess might get a little nervous if uh, yeah, right an excited wild-haired person is uh suddenly trying to take control of the cabin but no but, she's the unreasonable one right
3: right i think it's another there's another interesting aspect of it too think about the politics of this episode is just how difficult it is to depict uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terror in general. And I think people mm. have commented on this a lot, how few movies, they're all about Iraq and Afghanistan. There's some of the least memorialized wars in American history in terms of film, at least of the well-known ones. And, uh, you know, there's you think about it, there's really this episode and Zero Dark Thirty, Oh, come on, Henry, control, didn't you watch
0: uh, American Sniper? American <laughs> Sniper guess,
3: as The only portrayals oh of the Bin Laden assassination in, in mainstream media, right. uh, mainstream you know, Hollywood that I, that I can think of. And both of them are just so incredible as artifacts in terms mm. of what they, what they leave out, first of all. Because, again, this is a, a thing about journalists, right? The whole episode's about journalists, and I think they spend the first half of the episode trying to verify the tip that they've got. And they're looking around for it. And, of course, the tip is that he was killed in Pakistan. And not one of them ever mentions that Pakistan is an American ally. Or looks into the fact that he was living at a push compound like 10 miles away from the headquarters of the Pakistani Secret Service Mm -hmm. or something. I believe we're near a large military airport as well, which is, of course, one of these big unanswered questions about the death of bin Laden. Uh, Not to get too conspiracy about it, but... First of all, he wasn't in a cave in Afghanistan. He was living on the border of a country that we were effectively allies with Mm -hmm. in a nice compound for maybe 10 years, and somehow no one knew about it. And the other fact about it, which is that they immediately buried him at sea and (laughs) never took any photos. And there's an incredible ongoing set of defamation lawsuits between the Navy SEALs who did it about which one of them actually shot him. Right, yeah. uh, unreal. I is, they've all claimed it. They've all—I think there's six different oh, people who've claimed that they actually killed him, and they all are suing each other. I think if they lost, it's be over by now. But they all put out books saying that they had, and they've all sued each other. If you go look, look them up. It's an incredible story because absolutely no one can seem to agree what actually happened.
0: We'll do some uh, journalism but of our own. The
3: journalists of the news team really have no interest in any of these questions. Right. They just want to report the capital N news. You know, they just want to get it out there.
2: That- that kind of re- reminds me of the picture of uh, oh, one of the fascist movements that were happening in, in Portland and they were attacking someone and someone had taken a step back and took a picture of all of the journalists taking a picture of this person attacking. And it was like one person mm. actually took a step back and got a picture of the story, which is that no one was doing anything but just taking a picture mm. of this proud boy beating up someone.
0: Yeah, it's it's you know I, I I can't even hardly process all of the the different facets of this that like you said I mean it's it's taking all the nuance all the historical context flattening it all the way down and just presenting one straight line A to B narrative that you know we just are expected to you know consume and hate to draw some parallels with what's going on right now in the world but. Uh, you know, it'd be right. wise of us to, to, to kind of uh, pay attention to some of that context, I think.
3: I will say, though, I do think the newsroom works kind of incredibly as an indictment of the liberal psyche. Mm. In the same way mm. that the West Wing does, which is that if you acknowledge just how much it's fetishized, and of course this is the famous, the famous quote, I think it was maybe he quotes, He was getting toured around the White House and Obama's press secretary points and says, that's where CJ from the newsroom would do her briefings. And he just says, that's where you do your briefings. You are the, can I curse on this show?
2: Oh yeah.
3: You are the fucking press secretary of the White House and you're talking about a fictional character that is
1: based on you, that is based on you. We don't have that's... any patreons or sponsors, so you can say whatever you want. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And, well, and the other
3: and the other side of that too that you always think of, and I think it's true of this one is, yeah, they only care about the propriety of it. You know, mm-hmm. the propriety. Yeah. I think you think even in the episode where Gabby Giffords gets shot by someone anti-gun control. Yeah. You know, right wing yeah. nut. They there's never any questioning or thought about. The facts of any of it, you know, what actually happened, why it happened, what the point of it was. Right. Uh, it's just the propriety that matters. Just let's not report she's dead unless we're actually sure. Let's not report Osama uh, bin Laden's dead until the embargo is up. You know, it's right. just the concern for propriety and respectability that animates the politics of this show, and and zero substance. And right. uh, you know, in its, in its broader themes, they, they do report a kind of Live massacre type story. You know, like Vietnam. Massacre of civilians, use of white phosphorus and, and such. That's like the key plot point of the show. But of course, the whole thing is twisted in this weird way into being about how journalists are too overzealous mm. about finding government abuses. Right. And actually, and it, they should go a little easier on the troops and the government who is actually really in our best interest. And it's their overcalibrated uh, desire to break a story mm. that leads them to do... It, it, it's so funny because every... Idea that this show has about media is almost exactly the opposite of the right one. It,
0: it it's you could see it translate too into just like the Democrat platform too, like the law the way that the lawmakers act and and when when Trump was in office, it was kind of like all this discussion about the unwritten raw, you know laws of decorum and the standards and things like that. And it's like that's literally all they care about is the decorum mm-hmm. and the standards and the and the and the propriety. Like you said, it's it's and we we saw it come to fruition we had like what two democrats that were able to completely stonewall you know build back better or any anything anything like you can you name it we ain't got it because
1: what what good has come out of this administration so far it's It's
2: just so amazing to me because republicans don't seem to have this problem
0: yeah they don't have it because they're they they, can
2: get things passed when there's only like two people in freaking office
0: Something, something, Martin Luther King letter from Birmingham jail, something, I don't know, I don't know, he said something like that about the, the white moderate, I, I don't know, I don't remember.
3: <laughs> One other thing about this I always find so funny is, is, is how shockingly low the stakes are in this show in general. I mean, again, the stakes yes. are, we're going to tell the guy who is the pilot of this plane that Osama Bin Laden <laughs> died five minutes before he finds out otherwise. Like, that is, the, that is like, mm-hmm. one of the... Two, <laughs> the like, oh, moments we of the have discussion. to
2: mention the line. The, hold on, I have, it, I have it written. Where is it?
3: Uh, one other thing, I think it's also about the title of the episode, 5-1. It has to do with this attempt, I think, in the Obama administration to make Democrats the real terrorist fighters. Uh, Mm. And, you know, you see it and it's funny because it it backfired in the most (laughs) hilarious, well, terrifying way with the career of Hillary Clinton, because that was her entire claim to fame in the Obama administration was she was the liberal hawk. She was the troops on the ground in Libya and Syria. At one point, there's a New York Times article about it. She was actually the one signing off on CIA sponsored drone strikes in Mm. Libya on every morning. They would bring them to her and she would green light targets again. No legal authority for the secretary of state to do that but she simply did and that was her going to be her pivot her claim to fame because of course she was thinking politics is still the bush era it's right. all about being tough on terrorism and i'm going to be the toughest uh, you know democrat on terrorism and all she reaped for it was uh, benghazi
0: I, imagine <laughs> that, being, I just wish she well. would go away imagine I just, I, she would go away imagine being hillary clinton and just like being handed a stack of briefs of how many you know brown children you're going to destroy today and just being like, this is totally going to help my career, you know, and just like signing off on every single one of them, like it, Sadly,
2: it, that's it, probably not the thing that really hurt her career.
3: Right, well,
0: right. Yeah, well that's true.
3: the funny thing about Benghazi, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's I guess it's the, the right country for the wrong reason, you know, because it's all about oh, she let the, the troops die and not oh, she it decimated an entire region of Africa, Right. And now there are open air slave markets and it's in a state of permanent collapse and refugee crisis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et et cetera. (laughs) None of those things actually figure in, for example, the newsroom or... I mean, it really is kind of incredible how little content there actually is in in the view of the world that that Sorkin is portraying in this show.
2: Well, to go back to that then, because I got it here. So another very just classic, classic Sorkin line is... uh, What's his name? Um, Charlie Skinner turns to the second person in charge, the woman, I forget her name.
0: Uh, and uh, Emily Mortimer plays, uh, I don't know,
2: <laughs> anyway, the producer. Um, the, <laughs> s- the the second person in charge is like, why do you, why do you care about this? And she Mac. says, what?
4: The president's gonna tell us what's going on at 10.30. He's gonna tell us what's the virtue of breaking it five minutes early.
5: America thinks Bin Laden's alive. If I can make him dead one minute sooner, my entire life in journalism up until this point will have been worth it. All right. The people
2: think Bin Laden is alive. If I can make him dead one minute sooner, my entire (laughs) life in journalism up to this point will have been worth
0: it. I had that pulled up. My entire journalistic career culminated in making Bin Laden dead one minute sooner. Like...
3: It's incredible too because I, I I fear to think that it's true, you know. I fear to think that line is actually completely true. Had to have been lifted. Uh, sir, it
0: is.
2: My 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 note here says ha 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 ha
0: ha 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 ha. I mean, it, it's just like, how can you I, I imagine again? You know, you're you're devoting your entire life's work to ensuring that not only ensuring that one person. The person is dead, but you're the one that gets to tell everybody about it? It's just like... Uh, like <laughs> Get a plant! Right.
3: And this is kind of the classic Democrats as Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that mm. they believe that when Republicans say, for example, this is all about killing bin Laden, they actually believe it. They're such right. suckers that they actually believe that the war on terror was actually about killing bin Laden, yeah. that that was the point of it, Right. Uh, you know, of course, I think the hilarious thing is that the way they actually ended up finding the intel or something, I'm trying to remember, I, I don't remember the detail, but it was some kind of double agent or something inside Pakistani intelligence. I don't actually remember the details, but the funny fact about it is that it had nothing to do with the Patriot Act, and nothing to do with any of the expansion of, of state not. power that was entirely aimed at accomplishing this task, which they actually accomplished by some other completely roundabout means, and I right. think it had in the end absolutely nothing to do with the war on terror is such. I mean, that's the crazy thing right. about it, right? Uh, there was no connection between the war on terror and the death of Bin Laden. I mean, it was a thing that's... that happened to happen after and not in any sense because of everything else we did in the war on terror. And that's what I think makes this episode, takes it from just being bad to being grotesque mm-hmm. because that scene when he tells the flight attendant, it's like, we got revenge. You know, we got revenge for 9-11. And of course, 9-11, 9-11, titled the episode 5-1. There's a there's a there's a kind of he's trying to tell us something there, like this is right. when we close the loop and now we can move on. But the insane right. thing is the idea that that's what it was really all about. at all. And that's
1: mm-hmm. that's the speech, too, that he gives at the end. He talks about how our darkest days are followed by our finest hours.
6: Good evening from New York City. I'm Will McAvoy. ACN is now able to report and confirm that for the first time in almost three decades, the world has no reason to fear Osama bin Laden. In just a moment, in a live address to the nation, the president will announce that in a coordinated operation under the cover of darkness, U.S. Special Forces tonight killed the leader of Al-Qaeda and the mastermind behind the deadly attack of September 11th, 2001. It's been nine years, seven months, and 20 days since America's most wanted criminal took from us 2,977 American sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, Friends and colleagues. We were transformed that morning into a different nation, more fearful and so, of course, more hostile. And while nothing, not even this victory our country has waited for for such a long time, can bring back the souls lost on that terrible morning in New York City, in Virginia, in a field in Pennsylvania, and all across America and the world, let tonight serve as a welcome reminder that throughout our history, America's darkest days have always been followed by its finest hours.
1: I felt like I was losing my mind trying to figure out exactly what finest hours he's talking about. Like, <laughs> since 9-11, what finest hours has the U.S. had?
3: It's incredible. And I, I also think of that the, the thing, I think somebody, it might have been on Chapo Trap House, someone said going to the Hall of the Presidents and seeing Trump makes him like the punchline to the joke that is America. Like the lead up of all these august figures and then you just have Trump's like, you know, wig. And that's that's what it was all leading up. I think watching this show with that in mind really adds an extra flavor to it. Because (laughs) our brightest moments are ahead of us. (laughs) McDonald's
0: (laughs) in the Oval Office. Like the thumbs up with the McDonald's platter.
3: You know, Sorkin has to come back and he has to try to do the West Wing again. Apparently they were trying to do a reunion of it. Because just at, at... seeing him attempt to, to map his fantasies onto reality in current year would just be so incredible to watch. I mean, yeah. I really I, I desire to see it so badly.
1: Oh, God, no, because we, then we would have to have a, a story arc about the, the bad Putin invading uh, Ukraine, and it would, you know, follow behind the brave story of somebody from the Azov battalion.
0: I'm right.
2: <laughs> I would have to
1: totally screw that
2: up. I just... It, cause like oh I forget her name. The speaker, she said something West Wingy. Like she said that she was inspired to do this because
1: yeah, of West the, Wing. Yeah, the um press secretary, the Biden press
0: Jen Psaki or Yeah, Psaki. I don't know how to actually say her name. Yeah, yeah said her, that her she too, was yeah.
1: inspired to become a press secretary because of the, a character on the West Wing. Right. It,
2: and you can see it in her little comebacks that she mm-hmm. tries to do that are yep. just so disgusting.
0: The ones she, like, she, she thinks that she's... Well, she,
2: she should just get that shirt that says, fuck the poor on it or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, just wear it all the time.
0: She's like a walking embodiment of who's going to pay for it. It's, you know, like, it's like, I've, heard, I've like, actually heard her say that. Like, I think, you know, mm-hmm. who, oh, yeah, what you think COVID we're tests. just... Yeah, you, we think we're we just going to invent COVID tests out of midair and just hand them out to every mm-hmm. citizen? Uh, who, you know, where's that going to come from? The magic COVID test tree? You're like she, she said something like that, and it was just kind of oh, like, yeah. and, are you kidding me?
1: And then, you know, a couple weeks or a few <laughs> months later, everybody had four per mailing address. <laughs> right. Oh. Showing that it did need to be done, but we were going to do it in the dumbest way we could.
0: I had a, a Sorkinism here in my notes that said, Wow, Will is so smart. If only we just had more smart people like Will, all the world's problems would go away. <laughs> I mean, it's that I I think when you talk about the projection of Sorkin onto the characters and onto the plot and everything, it's just like that's gotta be how he feels about him on, him himself, right? Like, like if if everyone just Was as smart as I was then we wouldn't have these problems we would have decency and very liberating right?
1: Yeah,
3: it it's also funny to think that sorkin lived through all the things that are depicted in this show thinking we're really living in Historic times and we're really going to remember all the random bullshit that happened and is portrayed through the lens of the show Where I think if you watch the show today you you actually cannot remember and I mean I was pretty young at the time But I don't think most people could remember living through almost anything that actually happens in the show because they are completely lost to us and forgotten to us almost immediately. Uh, And I think that's kind of also accidentally reveals the real point of this. Like, I think the show will age well in the sense that if you watch it years and years from now, you'll come to realize, wow, it really doesn't matter at all. None of this mattered at all. (laughs) And we forgot about all of it. And that kind of tells you, I mean, that it it sort of gives away the whole game with the show.
2: Uh, Something though that's interesting to me, and this is a little funny point, cuz like we mentioned how like none of this matters but you know what also doesn't matter a lot but they somehow make it very interesting a slice of life animes like well there's
3: some human feeling there there's some yeah, you know love just, and right. good spirits and such
2: <laughs> <laughs> like it's just like maybe Sorkin should like take a, a slice out of like uh there's like a meme of like anime if it uh uno anime and it's just like very compelling and you're like very invested in it it's like talking about make, kind of making fun of Yu-Gi-Oh and stuff and it's like anime has this ability of taking the most dumb shit and making it very compelling and interesting like what what is it yuri on ice like ice skating is interesting but it's not that interesting let's let's only unless you're actually like really into it but if you've never done it before you know you're not going to be like oh, yeah, the three-point turn, like, oh, yeah, yeah, he got it. You know, you're not going to really be into it, but somehow anime makes it work. But then you have Sorkin, who's doing everything he can to make you give the slightest shit about this stuff, and he can't yeah. do it.
0: It It's like, uh, it's weird, too. I noticed that when he tries to do, like, his own little slice-of-life bit in the B-plot, you know, there's this weird uh-huh. thing going on with Maggie and... Which uh, did anyone else notice that J- the character Jim Harper in this show is essentially Jim Halpert from The Office? Like he's like the oh, same yeah. guy. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, it's like <laughs> it's a
1: whole Jim and Pam. <laughs> it's like a weird thing, thing. and like his, his name is, also is Jim, like Jim Harper.
0: Actress in this that's also
3: from The Office too. There's there's actually oh. like, a, like a bunch of Office connections to this. I think Kellen Col- Coleman. Huh. Uh, that's an obscure one. I'm just a big, big Office fan, so.
0: Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. That that's true. I noticed. I noticed them in it actually. I think. Okay. Anyway, it's I'm glad later y'all season
2: stuff. The the Pam and the other guy thing because it's like I've only watched a little bit of The Office because Jack really wants me to like it and I. Yeah,
6: can't yeah, get yeah. Into it. I'm sorry. I'm
1: going.
0: Anyway.
2: <laughs> but like, even I noticed that, and I have just very little like. I'm kind of wondering if that's on purpose,
0: well, Maggie is like meddling too in this deal like the like the uh, like the episode's out of context, so there's not you know a before and after this is kind of the I guess this plot is the connective tissue that's trying to like keep the overarching story going and the, ah, you know it's really boring and lame but uh Mag- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maggie is is one of the like she's like a intern or a reporter or something that's been there like she's moving up in the ranks or whatever, and then there's this guy, Jim Harper. I mean looks acts sounds everything like just like Jim Halpert but maybe a little bit shorter and she's like into his personal life like she's like who's this girl that you're talking to like who's this thing yeah. and it's like just constant like into it you know and and it's just really it feels it feels unrealistically insufferable like I don't know anyone Who would act like that in real life? You know, it just—it feels like it's like men writing women sort of stuff. Exactly.
2: That that because it's not just men writing women, but it's also an older man writing younger people and not knowing anything about new age culture. Because you know how people have guitar hero contests blindfold, and you know, yeah, the things that nobody ever does,
0: (laughs) right. I will say, though, that the first time that we were scheduled to do this episode, I actually lost my voice because I had been up the night before drinking and playing rock band with my neighbors. So it actually You're worked out.
1: you not doing it blindfolded.
0: I wasn't doing it blindfolded.
1: By the way,
3: just another fact, what what a dysfunctional workplace they were, they were getting in the show. They're having this insane, like, boozed-up party on a Monday night in the context of the show, hell yes. The other thing, that, I, the other thing about the show that's—I I, think—I think to your point that you can make anything interesting and likable if you portray the human element of it, and also the craft of it. Like this is the weird thing: this show is so little about the craft of news, so mm-hmm. much as the, or even just like how it's actually done. And it's funny because it's so such a behind-the-scenes look, and it still manages to be to be completely myopically about the thing that Sorkin is interested in, which is you know. The, the servant of the people, voice, you know, fourth estate idea about the media serving the people. And not anything about how news actually happens. And all kinds of completely unbelievable things happen in this uh, in this show in terms of how news is supposedly reported. Uh, which, again, it just breaks the core conceit of the show. Like, you're going to get an inside look on, at how
0: it happens. So, you know, I, I... To, uh, to, to go that ahead. end, there's a
1: bit in there where... She says that they've been doing dry
5: runs every Mm -hmm. month
1: to practice for this.
5: We have a computer that monitors all the police scanners and listens for certain words. There's been no act of domestic terrorism, though there is a frat party at Michigan State that's about to get broken up.
4: You guys know it's bin Laden, don't you?
5: Believe me, when we know it's bin Laden, you'll know.
4: I'd have expected it to be a lot more chaotic.
5: Since the first day Mackenzie got here, we've been practicing this once a month. We do dry runs. Obviously, there are always wild cards you can't predict. Hey, little buddy.
6: Oh, boy. Are you all right? Yeah. Uh, Max been worried. We got stuck in some traffic, so I ran here. We've been calling. I thought it would be better to keep running and answer the phone. What's that? I stopped to get a falafel.
1: And I'm just thinking, okay, I hope they were at least doing dry runs for like a generic, interchangeable, big breaking <laughs> story because like that's understandable. But if you're going 12 times a year practicing just to report on Biden Lawns' death, you've got something wrong upstairs. <laughs>
2: um, right. Broken Sadly, here. it was probably that.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then oh. they get all, like, smirky and, you know, jeering about Fox, the bad corporate news company, running with something that's unconfirmed mm-hmm. and ACN, which is the good corporate news company like <laughs> CNN <CNET> or MSNBC... <laughs> They try super hard to make sure that the correct news is reported and it's accurate. And see the actual CNN and the actual MSNBC, nobody, whether it's left or right or centrist or other centrist, which is all of our media, uh, nobody is trying that hard to be accurate because they're selling a commercial product. The actual news means absolutely nothing to them. What they care is that people are watching and then when people are watching, then they're consuming advertising. And so that advertising is what funds the news channel. That's all they care about. But what the episode's trying to do, and this is the cultural hegemony, is they are trying to condition the audience watching it into believing that the news can be trusted if it's the right news source. It right. can be trusted because they're making sure that they have full, you know, everything cleared and out of the embargo before they report it and they're being responsible and they're getting it right.
4: There's nothing wrong with waiting for the White House to tell us it's reportable. This isn't Watergate, they're not the enemy.
1: And so you need to always trust the news. And I think a lot of people, you know, came off of that kind of Sorkin brain mindset and then when the Trump years happened, they're watching the news and the news is constantly telling them that the scary guy who tweets is going to be going away soon because he's been busted you know, right. for this or he's been busted for that. He can't possibly stand anymore. It's going to have to. This is Any going to now. be the doom of him. And that's what the media was telling you. And I think the lesson everybody learned there was, oh, you actually can't trust these people. Right. You don't know fucking anything. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I, it's a classic Sorkin belief too that the idea that it's just about the people in charge. If it's the right people and they're virtuous and they're uh, just the right kind of people, then everything is fixed. And that's the story with the West Wing too. You know, you just need the right people in there. And of course, I think his whole read on the war on terror is exactly that way as well. You know, so long as the right people are prosecuting it with responsibility and sobriety, then uh, then it all work out for the best. Uh, it's still funny to me, and I think it's really just the best part about this that in a sense, it is like the most notable cultural artifact about the death of Bin Laden, other than the terrible movie and the lawsuits between the guys who all say they killed him. There's like no other representation of it in, in pop culture.
0: Well, I've got a, I, the misfortune of introducing the the third plot that's going on at the same time, and then we can wrap up the whole show, because uh, we're closing on time here, but last week we had our friend Akeem Keem on Akeem King on the show, and we watched the Boondocks, and it was a An episode about, uh, well, there was some police brutality in it, and I found it interesting that one of the major plots was uh, Terry Crews' character uh, being confronted by police. So how does that unfold here, and how is it not even close to and also close to reality?
6: I see you thinking about it. Do not do it. What are you putting in your pocket for? Motherfucker! Hey, get back here. You are not safe out here. Michael boy, get back. God damn it. Sir, is there a problem? There's a guy running west. He, he's he's going to go north on 5th. Just calm down. I'm calm, officer, but that Please man cannot back be out of, your vehicle. The keys are inside. Hey, hey, Could hey, you hey. just move it over to the side? I'm private calm security. Calm down and step back. Please, listen Turn to me. Turn around and
1: place your hands on the car. Officer. Turn around and place your hands on the car. I'm
6: going to kill
2: him.
1: What was that? Officers, I'm armed. They it said it's armed. Put your hands
6: on the car i'm licensed to carry there's a weapon currently on your person under my jacket on my left side it's loaded with the safety arm my carry permits in my back right pocket i work for blue north security and my client is at large you're a big guy okay
2: don't do anything that's
6: going to make us nervous nothing i can do about being big and black at the same time
2: well the only thing that i think was realistic was when they said don't do anything that will cause us to be scared or whatever and he said making me
1: nervous big guy
2: yeah, and there's like there's nothing I can do about being big and black at the same you know or right, right now not the same time, but um, that, that that is the only thing I think was realistic. Everything else, like they would have they would have mm-hmm.
0: they probably would have yeah. killed him. They like for, yeah. like honestly, it, it's they so the to put it to frame it, you know Terry Cruz's character like gets out of the car. He's in traffic jam. He's trying to get back to the studio and. Uh, something happens cops are out there in the street trying to direct traffic or whatever and then he ends up getting accosted because he's black essentially and it it's weird that they he, that Sorkin almost goes there you know and he he he, he bumps the line just a little bit and set, kind of like his it, frames like you know sometimes you know black people are at a disadvantage you know whenever it comes to the police but we're not going to talk about that right now, you know, it's well, like, it's very brief.
2: It's okay because then they give them the news that, um, you know, Bin Laden died, so and, then everyone's you know, friends again.
6: Now mm-hmm. Because of can, the news.
1: Because we, we're going to celebrate the death of external enemies so we can ignore the presence of internal enemies. Right,
6: yeah. Lonnie! Good evening, officers. Uh-oh. There's no way they can know, right? Hey. Can we help you? Mr. McAvoy, you know this man? Of course. He's a very famous jockey. You know what? We'd appreciate your cooperation. He's my bodyguard, and I ran out of the car because we were stuck in traffic, and chances are he abandoned the car to try to protect me because he's good at his job. He's also a former MP in the U.S. Army, so I want to tell him something. Lonnie, come here. You should tell him. You should tell him. Officers, I have some news for you.
3: That is ultimately, I think, you know, what, what, what the... I think the most hegemonic aspect of this is there's not a single moment, I think, in the entire episode, obviously, except for the speech at the end, where anyone really reflects on the death of bin Laden or what it means. And his reflection on it is so Hallmark, car, you know, hallmark card bullshit that uh, it, it, it doesn't even read or scan in the moment. I mean, I don't think it even works for 2012, let alone 2022. I mean, 10 years on from this episode, I think there's something really incredible about just how completely uninterested it is in the idea, both at the time, and I think it was a real thing in the culture at the time, that this was something that we would all get up on our feet and cheer yeah. and celebrate, uh, and that, that, was the, that it was going to be the great uniter, and that it was going to be pivotal. And of course, I, I'll say the other fact about it, which I think is kind of critical, and it is a fact in the episode, which is Joe Biden emails him, telling him that he's allowed to report the news a minute early and yeah, right. uh this is one of the phone. theories about i am not gonna <laughs> say either way i do think bin laden is dead i think we america probably killed him but you know one of the, the things that was said at the time is of course it was right before uh, obama's re-election right. and that ultimately the only real import the death of bin laden had in american life was it was another talking point for the obama re-election campaign i'm so yeah, happy you that brought that up other, that's the yep. other part that is, is almost go. present in this episode, but then totally ignored. Because, of course, it's, it's Joe B. who is emailing him, telling him he's allowed to report the news.
1: So, what happens, too, is um, this episode actually aired it, right after, I think, the conventions in 2012. It aired in the middle of the 2012 presidential campaign.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And, and what was the, the screenshot?
1: and you can see there's a point where it flashes on screen written on two pieces of paper that Wills consulting it says on one obama good and on the other it says osama bad now the pretext for that that they set up the whole i think p- potentially one of the reasons he's high throughout the whole episode is the reason he's got that is to tell him oh okay i need to be sure to say that i need to be sure to say osama died and Obama killed him, and not the other way around. It's just up there to keep his head straight. But oh, man. in practice, what happens is you see flashing <laughs> on the screen, like a subliminal message, the words Obama good, Osama like, bad. Like, on a piece of paper, middle,
5: paper. like
3: Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> in <the middle laughs> campaign, in that is incredible. That is really the thing, about, the thing about Sorkin that actually matters in the on the hegemony level. Is not, I mean, how uh, sort of tasteless and how bad he he reads these things and how how little I think he understands the topics he engages in, but actually how incredibly influential he is mm. on yeah. the liberal psyche and how he really matters. I guess you could say mattered. I don't know his influence today. I think it, no, it's a long, still
2: really big. Apparently,
3: yeah. but, a bunch but of like sur-
2: white liberal women are just really right. into him, and it really creeps me out.
3: And I think you can you can go back to the Bush era and see how. The democratic impotence of that era really vented itself in the TV show about the good president. And we can all, and this is before Russiagate, this is how you pretend and make it all okay, uh, which is you just sit around and imagine you had a good guy as president instead of a bad guy. Right. And not only was it crazily popular whatever and shaped the minds of every Democrat who's occupied the White House since then, but also, even when the show – I didn't know that fact, but that makes a lot of sense because Sorkin has been brought on by the DNC many times right. as a political consultant. Right. And I think he's even written some speeches. He's done all kinds of stuff. I think he must – in the same sense that he's trying to make the – when you report the news, the, the, you know this pivotal, world-defining question, he also wants the show itself to matter politically. And so he uses it to do this kind of grotesque victory lap. Right. I guess right at, a, right at a convenient time. The insane thing being him imagining that it would matter politically and anyone watching it would be right. not an Obama voter in the first place. But. Exactly.
0: Yep. It, it's like yeah. the the I used to play softball with Joe Biden thing is such a I smoke pot with Johnny Hopkins
2: thing. Like. It, it, it art reflects life and life reflects <laughs> yeah. art.
0: And then the FD, the, 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 fire department all stands up and salutes and everybody clapped and the, cl- the speech c- closes the Obama speech about, you know, getting Osama closes and Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, they, just,
1: they go back to the actual footage of it at the end there.
0: Right. And, and then
2: everyone uh, lived happily ever yeah, after.
0: Or that the happened end. the show, Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about the Gravel Institute. Love
3: to be here. Always love to bash Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> yes. I'll tell you, and I'm going to make a confession here. Uh, I was a big West Wing fan. I was a big Sorkin fan. I still think The Social Network is a good movie, but kind of for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I uh, started co-founded the Gravel Institute. It's a nonprofit where our goal is to take, if you ever heard of this man, Dennis Prager, right-wing radio host and former Mossad agent, actually, if you haven't mm-hmm. heard of that. Uh, who founded a group called Prager University. It's not a university. It's just a, a cutout of various right-wing donors trying to influence kids and young people by pumping them their YouTube diet full of right-wing propaganda
0: right.
3: uh, They spend 40 million dollars a year to make sure that your kids see it in YouTube ads And believe that progressive income tax was invented by Satan and these sorts of things and our goal as an organization is to combat them from the left by creating short, authoritative, accessible videos about important topics, economic history, po- economics, history, politics, uh, from a left perspective, and hopefully seeding some of that out there instead of the dreck that you get from PragerU. Uh, anyone who's interested in it, you can go to youtube.com, put in the Gravel Institute, spelled gravel, G-R-A-V-E-L. Uh, if you really like it, you can support us on Patreon, uh, and uh, I would uh, I'd love to come back at some point in the future. We've also talked about we want to do some kind of media criticism eventually in our yeah. in videos we do. Now the thing is, it's so common on YouTube already. You know, I think a lot of yeah. left tube is just you know complaining about TV, right. and so we want to uh, we wanted to break out of that mold a little. But I think there's there's a place for it, especially when you talk about hegemony and and right. these sorts of things. And honestly, I think that these days. When it comes to trusting authority and believing what the capital N news tells you, I think liberals are more
0: of a problem than conservatives. I I totally agree, and I love the content. I watch every single piece that comes out, and uh, always always thrilled uh, to see it. So, um, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today, and uh, you know hope that uh, you know we can air this out. This is our 50th episode. This is you you caught us at a great awesome. time. This is our this is our 50th one. So, uh we were uh you know, it's a long road to get here, but we've had some really cool guests and uh this is a, a really cool way to celebrate I think a nice milestone.
1: Yep. Be sure to go back through the last 10 or so or maybe 20 uh, at most and uh, listen to them cuz some of those are pretty good.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Well, just know this May Day, uh, I'm going to be sitting, uh, taking two weed brownies, a in and I'm going to sit down and watch this episode.
0: <laughs> All right. And,
3: and just cry Power tears to of joy I, I... that we finally got him. Uh, that's going to be what I do this this May.
0: Fantastic. Well, pop uh, away. Plugables for us, of course. Gravel Institute, always, always a pleasure. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, we're at HedgePod, H-E-G-E-P-O-D, uh, HedgePod at gmail.com, we're working on a website, we've got a Patreon, it's linked out there, we'll put it in the description, we'll put some Gravel content in the description as well. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, sticking with us for 50 episodes, been a hellacious ride, and hopefully after a semi-short break, might be, might be able to do 50 more, but might take some time off for a little while too. So we'll see how it goes. And uh, with that, we will catch y'all the next time.
5: Bye. Bye. M5. Do it for me, Will.